You're listening to Pretty Girls Talking Dirty. I'm your host, Elizabeth. My parents' idea of a sex talk was telling me, just don't. And while communication clearly wasn't our family strength, I forged for the truth anyway. Over 10 years of therapy combined with sexual and emotional exploration have led me here, to this podcast. This is Pretty Girls Talking Dirty. Coming to the decision to launch a podcast took a significant amount of thought for me. The intersection between avoidance and conflict was the model I witnessed while growing up, so naturally a big decision like this made me uneasy. I kind of stutter between the fear, a rejection I felt so often from my parents as a child, and the bubbling excitement to talk to people and learn about them and grow. In my family, we were not allowed to talk about sex. It just didn't happen unless it was to say, just don't or wait for marriage. (laughs) We were the typical Midwestern white family that went to church. My dad was a praise band leader, for God's sakes. My sisters and I were forced to attend church things. I mean, it wasn't all bad, although I do remember my sister Sarah being grounded for skipping youth group, which required you to give up your Thursday night for church. It's what every teenager wants, right? To hang out with a bunch of kids you don't even have anything in common with? When you glance at my family, we are a well-dressed, mostly smiling group. But if you peeked into one of our towering windows, you would understand that the little girls weren't smiling. Their lips were tight with anxiety. The oldest grimace from the hand at the back of our neck. Mom held down the home, us kids, and a severe mental illness. And dad disappeared overnight for work, sometimes weeks at a time. He'd turn out to be an aging narcissist who eventually would completely disappear from my life. We all had our host of dysfunction. Don't get me wrong, I'm not an exception. I did realize, though, where I differed from my family was when I began to notice that our behaviors weren't normal or healthy, and I started to grow. When I told my dad I was going to therapy, he asked me if my then-male therapist was a pervert. If that doesn't tell you how dysfunction views a healthy behavior, then I don't know what does. When a family is dysfunctional, it will protect that dynamic at all costs. It's human nature. We are drawn to what we know, and we will continue to sabotage personal growth unless we can confront it head on. I know it's easier said than done. I remember learning about the algorithm behind Match.com in one of my honors classes in high school. One of the indicators they consider for a relationship match is the finger length or digit ratio. It's basically a measurement of your index finger compared to your ring finger. Somehow that measurement can be used to predict a good match, and scientists lend this theory to the amount of testosterone and hormones in your body, blah blah blah. But I remember demanding to see my parents' hands, and theirs were a match. Unbelievable. I 
obviously didn't consider the hundreds of other aspects of connection and relationships that would be taken into account. But I didn't care. I was so intrigued then and there by the human connection. I've since become obsessed with learning about myself and how I relate to others, as well as the way my friends and family connect as well. But when it came to my family, they weren't interested. Attempts to normalize our emotional traumas were shut down, and sometimes in a painfully blunt way, that had just become our way of communication. I accepted it then, but I grew to feel shattered underneath it. My family would, on more than one occasion, clamor to silence my efforts to open and heal the family wound. I spent my teenage years wrestling with the emotional trauma of abusive parents, primarily coping by binge drinking and very large amounts of marijuana. I was an A student. I was on the honor roll, taking college classes and honors courses. I was a cheerleader. I was doing all of the things I should have been doing. Yet, I felt a tornado raging inside of me. It would spill out and no one around me would listen. Not my parents, my friends, my teachers, not my church. So I continued to drink it away or fuck it away or whatever carnal mechanism fit with the moment and opportunity of my ridiculously strict curfew. Your body is a temple, my dad used to say like some riddle is going to help me decide whether or not I would go to hell for dry humping my boyfriend. And my mom would go along with that abstinence only talk until years later. Communication in our family just didn't make sense. I realized I didn't have a voice. I wasn't allowed to have a voice. I finally realized that no one cared. Or that's what I believed to be true. If I could shout so loudly and everyone could hear me but no one was willing to help, what was the point? What is the point? That's what I thought. I found myself in this psychiatric unit in Ann Arbor, Michigan after a particularly painful night of binge drinking. Alone. Again. I had been calling my parents on and off for weeks, sobbing, telling them I wished I just wouldn't wake up in the morning. I just wanted the pain to go away. Not realizing that the pain that they were perpetuating was the very pain causing my anguish. I was transferred to my hometown hospital where there were beds available. And a phone call from my mom revealed that she wouldn't be coming to be by my side at the hospital because the plumber was coming. After I was transferred, I was close enough in proximity that my family made the effort to visit. I was discharged after the minimum hold, but not before I met with the psychiatrist one last time to get the okay to leave. I glanced at the clerk in the corner of the room, tap, 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 typing every exchange. You're lucky, I remember the psychiatrist saying. It seems like you have a really great support system at home. I smiled ironically. I'm sure she thought it was a smile of recognition, but 
She didn't know that the only reason they were now showing up was they thought they had fucked me up so badly that I was finally going to be tolerable. They were right in that I wasn't going to be the same, but they didn't realize the agony of solitude, of years of debilitating depression and crippling anxiety, the fear of the unknown in a place where people literally lose their minds and go to die. It shook me deeply enough to learn that I was alone, and that was okay. I was the only one who could fix me. I was not going to leave that place, go back to my apartment, and cry every night. I wasn't going to rely on anyone anymore. I knew inside of me I had the tools to do it. And I knew there were other people like me because I had seen them in the hospital, in school, on the streets. Some of them still had a light in their eyes. They had fight left. And at the end of the day, that's what it's about. The willingness to fight for your life and your stability and your health. When I was in the hospital, I had this intrusive thought. I looked around and I saw all of these people who essentially lived their life in that psychiatric unit. And I thought how easy it would be to just let everything go. Just live a simple life. Let all of the pain consume me. But something nagged at me. Something tugged inside of me. And I just couldn't let myself do that. I couldn't let myself go. I knew that I had to fight. While I now knew all of these things about myself, what I didn't know is that it would eventually push away every single person in my family. There would be moments, glimpses of clarity, of progress, of growth. They would come to me and we would have breakthroughs. It felt like we were moving forward, like we were going to be close. We could repair things. But it never stuck, and that's okay too. The path to self-exploration is not paved by your friends and family. In fact, it echoes with the criticism of everything you thought you knew. For me, the thought of living my life in silence, pretending like everything was okay when I knew that it wasn't. I knew somewhere, somehow, if I just kept hanging on, if I just kept pushing and learning and exploring and figuring myself out, I knew I would be unstoppable. I knew eventually I would get to the place where I could look myself in the eye and actually really appreciate myself and every fucking thing I had gone through. And that's just what I want for everybody. None of us should be sorry for that. None of us should apologize for being better and trying harder and growing. And we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. I am past the point in my life where I am willing to sit silently and smile and look pretty and feminine and cute. That's not to say that it's okay to stomp on other people or to cease growing. I think 
In fact, it's the opposite. You have to look at yourself and your own actions in order to consider growth, to truly consider growth. That's what this is. That's what I'm doing here, and I hope you'll join me. This has been Pretty Girls Talking Dirty. We hope you'll join us next week as we talk to Kristen Van Est about her experience of learning she had HPV in China. We'll discuss COVID-19 and dirty vaginas. See you then.